0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at tidewaterac.com. few destinations in the South can match the historic beauty of Charleston, South Carolina. Stunning cobblestone streets wind through a waterfront city of meticulously preserved homes and structures that date back to a century before the colonies won their freedom from the crushing grip of the royal crown. But Charleston is not the first Carolina community bear the name of the king from whose reign it was born. That distinction belongs to a smaller and much shorter-lived settlement three hours north along the Cape Fear River, which was initially stoked by excitement from its founders and later plagued by insurmountable obstacles. The First Charles Town, as it was called, was a valuable learning experience in settling a new land, of still unknown promise and problems. Although it is outshined in history's memory by the much more alluring and mysterious failure of the lost colony, Charlestown was just that, a failure. A miscalculation of noble ambition left to the mercy of mother nature, political hurdles, and ultimately a careless disinterest in its survival. The birth of America is rooted in many stories of such ambition and risk-taking, but few are as important to the Carolinas as the first attempt to make a home along the Cape Fear at Charlestown. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of Southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington. Starting with this episode, we're flipping to a new chapter in our local history book for a two-week look at the origins of the Cape Fear region through the lens of its earliest colonial settlements, Charlestown and Brunswick Town. This week, we're focusing on Charlestown, the first attempt to settle the land along the as-yet-named Cape Fear River in the 1660s. It's a fascinating story that gets to the heart of why explorers first saw promise in the region, and how the mistakes they made in seizing it for themselves ultimately spelled doom. It's a fascinating story that gets to the heart of why explorers first saw promise in the region, and how the mistakes they made in seizing it for themselves ultimately led to its demise. As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this new episode as we get to the root of the Cape Fear's origins with the rise and fall of Charlestown. Believe it or not, the first white settlers along the Cape Fear River weren't directly transplanted from the dreary streets of Britain, as the broad strokes of history might have you believe. Yes, they were English, but Charlestown was actually populated in part by settlers and farmers from Barbados in the Caribbean, which was owned by the British Crown. But before we get into how Barbados played an integral part in the development of the Cape Fear region, let's first set the scene of the British Crown leading up to Charlestown. Without rehashing a few centuries of civil war, political infighting, and a few beheadings, we'll start our story with the reinstallation of King Charles II to the throne in 1660, and the creation of the eight lords' proprietors of Carolina. The eight elite men were among the chief supporters of the king when his claim to the monarchy was ripped away after the beheading of his father, King Charles I, in 1649. Restored to the throne after fighting off a challenge to his crown, the king wasn't exactly swimming in money to compensate his supporters, so he gave them something richer, the deed to the tract of English-owned land in the New World, soon to be known as Carolina. Carolina. Although the king ultimately maintained control over what would become the north and south colonies of Carolina, he eagerly handed over the duties of settlement, tax collection, and more to these eight men. In effect, the lord's proprietors were the law of the land, even though they lorded over an undeveloped and largely unexplored piece of land an ocean away, which none of them had ever stepped foot on. It was they who would determine who could settle on the land, a loosely defined power that was greatly dictated by how the new world was going to benefit them. Around this time, the leading explorer of the Carolina coast, for the purpose of determining its suitability for possible settlement, was William Hilton Jr., who sailed his ship, The Adventure, on two voyages to the coast between 1662 and 1663. The first was sponsored by Massachusetts Puritans, and ironically, it set sail from Charlestown, Massachusetts, on August 14, 1662. The Puritans' primary motivation for turning their attention to Carolina and hiring the seafaring Hilton was a thirst to establish their own estates. The New Englanders looked towards the burgeoning colony of Virginia and its ample room to grow with envious eyes, having largely been boxed in and limited to the little available land in Massachusetts that wasn't already promised to early settlers. It was during this three-week exploratory mission that Hilton dubbed the river he traveled the Charles, in honor of the man sitting on the throne. It would later be renamed the Cape Fear River. The Puritans were pleased with the glowing report Hilton bore when he returned in November, claiming the region was fertile with good soil, there was plenty of wildlife to hunt, and the nearby Native American tribes weren't hostile, but rather poor. The eager settlers were en route to the coast with plans to stake a claim on their new home within months but they never put down roots. Why is still up for debate, though some cite a desire to avoid clashing with the Lord's proprietors, who were in the process of drawing up their own plans for Carolina, which they could execute with as much liberty as they pleased. Some sources claim the settlers were given a report of the region during the fall months, but arrived to unexpected conditions in the spring. Another claims relations with the local tribes went sour almost immediately. Whatever spooked them, they unloaded their cattle to roam free on what is now Baldhead Island and turned their sails back north, leaving the land as they found it an undeveloped wilderness. But they didn't abandon their mission without leaving what has been described as a scandalous document carved on a tree for anyone who followed in their footsteps. Perhaps it was a last-ditch effort to deter habitation. A petty, if we can't have it, no one can ploy. It's not clear what exactly that message said, but it was still waiting when a new contingent of Barbadian settlers arrived in 1664. Even if the Puritans had actually planted their flag on the land which Hilton had purchased for them from the local Native American tribes, it wouldn't have mattered. Their petition to the Lord's proprietors to settle the land and establish a self-governed independence had been denied outright. Almost simultaneous to the Massachusetts Puritans starting to feel the claustrophobia of New England... English settlers in Barbados were experiencing a similar unease. Many of them had relocated to the still young island to escape the turmoil of England's tumultuous 17th century. But fairly quickly, the Caribbean island exploded in population and cost of living when it became the main sugarcane supplier for Britain. Almost immediately, the little fertile land still available became exorbitantly pricey, making it impossible for middle-class farmers to buy in to the growing industry. In other words, Barbados had become a land of wealthy men and little opportunity for everyone else. It's at this point that a few factions turned their sights to America, which was said to have been plentiful in new settlements and even more undeveloped land where these settlers could build their own. But competing interests and differing opinions on where exactly to land in America would cause a rift early on. The path to Carolina would develop into a battle between two Johns, John Vassell and John Yeamans. Vassal was raised in Massachusetts before relocating to Barbados in 1661 to claim his inheritance from his father, William, who had died on the island six years earlier. Vassal would go on to sink nearly every dime he had into Charlestown and would be the last to abandon the doomed settlement. Yemens, meanwhile was in a much more influential and financially secure position than Vassal. He was a wealthy plantation owner, with a seat on the Barbados Council and the ear of many of its elite residents, as well as the favor of the Lord's proprietors back in England. Vassal would make the first move to branch out from Barbados by hiring Hilton and his adventure crew to make a second scouting trip up the Charles River and reaffirm his earlier belief that it was not only inhabitable, but a promising piece of the new world. He initially landed near Port Royal, the present-day site of Charleston, South Carolina, and later anchored near what is now Town Creek in Brunswick County in December of 1663. He returned in January with another report speaking to the favorability of the land and had again brokered the acquisition of 1,000 acres for the Barbadians from the local tribe leader. In the negotiation process, he had also been gifted two of the tribe leader's daughters, because let's not forget that this was a very different time. It's not known if this is where Vassal and yemen's shared desire to make a go of it in America diverged but their factions started pursuing two different destinations. Vassal soon set sail with his investors and settlers for the land along what would become the Cape Fear River. Yemans, meanwhile, held back and started to prepare his case that the more desirable location was Port Royal, a more southern settlement that could fend off a northern expansion by the Spanish, who were south near Florida. Vassal and his settlers, ferried by Hilton's ship, arrived in the Cape Fear on May 29, 1664, and were joined soon after by a small group of New England Puritans looking to take part in the settlement. It's here that I should note that Vassal didn't notify the Lord's proprietors of his intention to settle in Carolina until after he had officially put down roots a bold and dangerous move that he hoped would help in his negotiations for land rights. In his mind, if boots were already on the ground and the structures were already built, could they really deny their request? He had been working with two men he believed held sway with the lord's proprietors and acted on their behalf, but he would soon learn that that wasn't exactly the case. When he was ready to formally submit his petition, he sent his cousin Henry Vassal, who met with the Lord's proprietors, and came away with what he felt was a promising outlook for their negotiations. Within the first few months, the settlers across the ocean had constructed a central compound just north of modern-day Town Creek, and then began branching out to stake claim on acreage for their own estates. This was rare for a settlement at the time. Most stayed close to a singular town and acted as a stronghold. But no town ever developed in Charlestown. Instead, its settlers were single-mindedly interested in establishing their own plantations and getting to work on their legacies. On their properties, which would stretch as far out as 60 miles from that central compound They grew potatoes, tobacco, corn, cotton, fruits, and introduced plants they brought with them from their native lands. Two years later, the settlement would count as many as 800 settlers within its far-flung borders. That number was derived from a promotional pamphlet distributed on the streets of London to try and lure more settlers to Charlestown. They had brought their own livestock, which they let Rome free, and took advantage of the exports that made the Carolina coast so rich an opportunity, like the now signature longleaf pine, which they used to build their homes. By October 1665, Yehman's contingent of settlers was ready to embark on their own journey to the Port Royal site. But after they set sail, a storm bore down on his three ships, forcing him to head farther north and land at Charlestown. As the sparring leaders of aspiring settlements, Vassal and Yeamans weren't keen on spending much time together, and Yeamans was gone again as quickly as he had arrived. But his lingering presence and influence over the settlement would not go back to Barbados with him he was soon named governor of Clarendon County, in which the Charlestown settlement was located. Vassal, who was named deputy governor and surveyor general, was suddenly outranked by his rival, and his burgeoning settlement was now in second position to Yemen's Port Royal ambitions. At the same time, the Charlestown settlers were presented with a new agreement from the lord's proprietors. That was in stark contrast to what they had originally signed on for and already started building. Under the new agreement overseen by Yemens, they would be randomly given parcels of land, meaning some would get tillable soil and others would get useless swampland. It was a setback that would prove to be the beginning of the end for the settlement. With the new agreements, the Lord's proprietors had clearly shown their favoritism for a settlement in Carolina, and it wasn't vassals. Clearly, they hadn't taken kindly to the Charlestown settlers, setting up shop without their permission. At the time, England was suffering through a war with the Dutch, and many of its residents were dying in the Great Plague making the coordination of supplies and land negotiation for a settlement across the pond of little priority. Despite their differences, Yehman wasn't going to let the Charlestown residents starve, so he sent a ship back to Barbados for provisions. Unfortunately, it was tossed about on the high seas, so much so that, according to some sources, its captain threw himself overboard leaving a young boy to steer the ship back to Carolina. At this point, Vassal was losing settlers, who abandoned their homes and took leave on any vessel they could. The dwindling numbers also left the settlement vulnerable to attacks from Native Americans, who had grown hostile to the settlers after newer members began kidnapping children from the local tribes to try and convert them to the Christian faith. A very ill advised practice. The Native Americans couldn't match the guns of the settlers, but they could almost do something worse. They began to slowly kill their livestock, sabotage their crops, and would even pick off settlers traveling alone. The ones who remained behind in Charlestown broke into two groups those who wanted to stick it out and commit to what they had started and those who wanted to cut their losses. Vassal even sent his trusted cousin Henry with one last plea for aid from the Lord's proprietors. But the Dutch intercepted the message, and Henry died at sea in 1667. His plea never made it to England. After the remaining settlers voted to disband in the summer of 1667, Vassal was forced to abandon his hard-fought home of three years. It must have been tough, not just for the leader of the Charlestown settlement, but for all the families who had left their lives behind to take a chance on a piece of Carolina that they hadn't even seen before they arrived, only to build up a life and then be forced to abandon it to start anew yet again. According to some sources, Vassal still tried to make sense of the failure of Charlestown after he left, claiming that had two dozen or so men stayed behind, they could have salvaged the settlement. Unfortunately, only half a dozen or so men are said to have even considered such a proposal. For a brief time, Vassal was made penniless by the Charlestown disaster but he managed to get back up on his feet and even returned to Barbados and other Caribbean islands where he established a career as a successful merchant. He died in Jamaica in 1688. Some settlers from Charlestown moved back to the island as well, while others went north to Massachusetts and Virginia. In an ironic twist of fate, a few would even settle in Yemen's Port Royal site, which would later become Charleston, South Carolina. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Charlestown's failure wasn't without its lessons to be learned. The Lord's proprietors removed the randomized land lottery from the terms of the Port Royal site, acknowledging that the variability of Carolina's geography would leave some unfortunate settlers saddled with unharvestable land. It wouldn't be until the second half of the 20th century that archaeologists made significant strides in excavating the Charlestown site, or what they could find of it. In the grand tapestry of America's foundation, Charlestown's three year lifespan came and went in a flash. It was built on good intentions and torn apart by internal struggle and external neglect. But let's not forget that Vassal and his fellow settlers were the first white residents of the Cape Fear region. And they helped pave the way for the communities that would follow in their footsteps in the Carolinas, particularly in providing insight into what not to do. Joining me now to talk further about Charlestown is Jack Fryer Jr. He is a local historian, And a teacher at Laney High School here in Wilmington and he's also about to release a book on Charlestown titled Charlestown on the Cape Fear the rise and fall of the first Barbadian settlement in Carolina thank you so much for joining me Jack it's my pleasure so we're going to start out by talking about uh one of the first initial questions that I had uh, in our story, we mentioned that when the settlement gets to or the settlers get to this particular site in Carolina, they are um, kind of they, waiting for them is a message from the Massachusetts Puritans who had decided against settling in this area. Do we know what that message was, whatever that warning was that they left?
1: We do not. Uh, the Puritans from Massachusetts had come down in 1663, hoping to establish a settlement here on the Cape Fear River. Uh, the farmable land up around Massachusetts was, was quickly being consumed, and they were looking for a place for you know, younger generations to go ahead and plant their flag. Uh, but what they wanted to do was transplant the same sort of terms of occupation that they had in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to the Cape Fear the Lords Proprietors had a wholly different model in mind, and so the uh, the 1663 settlement never really got off the ground. While they were here in the Cape Fear River, there are accounts of a a young man, you know, nobody names him or anything like that, uh, coming aboard the Puritan ship and having a confab with him. And after that, uh, they release their cattle on Bald Head Island and fill their water cask, and they turn around and leave. But You know, the account says that they left a a warning to people who may come after them, tacked to a tree at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. Uh, Nobody knows exactly what that says, but it was pretty much a derogatory comment on the place. Now, whether that was just their peak at being, you know, uh, having their plans thwarted or... Whether they actually believed it, which I find hard to believe, given Verzano and, and Hilton's accounts of, of what they found when they came into the Cape Fear it was obviously prime real estate. Uh, so it's probably just sour grapes on the part of the Puritans who, who you know, on the way out, tacked up a sign that says this place blows. You know? Exactly. Yeah, they just <laughs> yeah.
0: they didn't they didn't want to give it to anyone. else. Right, I guess. Right. Uh, it's funny to think about that, because uh, <laughs> it, We also know of Croatoan that was written on a tree. And so all these messages on trees around this time, people were just really into uh, leaving ominous messages behind. Yeah. Um, So what would it have been been like for the settlers who did kind of take hold in this region? They're trying to make homes out of wilderness, as as you wrote, and, and all these things. What would it have been like to do that? I mean, what would they have needed to know or what would they have needed to do to make it work? And I imagine it was tough work.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely tough work. Um, you know, while there were some people of affluence who joined the Barbadian settlers, the Bajans who who came here to uh, Cape Fear, and then you know later on joined by a contingent of, of Puritans from Massachusetts, um, they were coming into a place that was that was pristine wilderness, and uh, you know the only occupants were the local Cape Fear Indians at yeah you know, the village of Nikos. and uh, so what they were going to have to do was come in here and and just start from scratch. You know, their initial supplies were all things that they brought with them. You know, they had to bring their tools and then things like that. So there was, a, there was not a whole lot of class hierarchy when it came to getting the job done. Um, you had yeoman workers out there in the fields alongside people who were you know, from the gentry back mm-hmm. on Barbados, you know, because that land all had to be cleared. Uh, you had to make timber to To you know, make the the planks and things that you needed to build your homes and build fortifications, and then you had to clear fields for planting and and things like that. So, yeah, it was it was not something where they were coming into a furnished apartment kind of thing. Yeah, they, they had no home yeah, depot or Yeah, there were an Lowe's. awful lot of nights spent under the stars mm-hmm. until they could get those those dwellings, those abodes,
0: put together. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing I found interesting was um, they also kind of went outward. They weren't just kind of all huddled in one place. It says that that settlement was like stretched a, a, you know, and that, to 60 miles. Yeah,
1: that eventually became a bone of contention because by 1665, the Lord's proprietors wanted to enact a terms of settlement. That mimicked what was going on up in New England, where you had compact plots of everybody living right next to each other. Yeah, and there were reasons for that. You know, given the geography up north, and uh, you know the the needs for mutual defense against the Indians. If you can keep everybody together like that, it's much easier to administrate. It's easier to collect your taxes from, and and mutual defense, and all of those things. And they thought, yeah, that would work here in the Cape Fear too. But none of the eight lords' proprietors who helped put King Charles back on the throne in England in, in 1660, uh, as their reward, they were given the Carolina patent. None of these guys had ever been to Carolina, and certainly not the Cape Fear. The only one who was ever in the New World at all was uh, William Berkeley. He was governor of Virginia, and Sir John Colleton had an estate on Barbados, but he never made it to the mainland either. Uh, so... None of these people were aware of the kind of geography that we have along the Cape Fear here in southeastern North Carolina, where you'll have sections of really good land, and that's next door to a piece of swamp and sand and and things that's really not very good at all. So when the settlers got here, they started ranging up the Cape Fear River and into the tributaries like Town Creek and, and the northeast Cape Fear and places like that the same way you know, that, that establishes a pattern that followed through with all of the settlement of the Cape Fear, uh, because they're looking for places that are on the water, that are good land for growing, that are elevated against flooding and defensible. Uh, so while the accounts say that as many as 800 people were part of this Charlestown settlement, uh, we have never found outside of that you know one central compound that they discovered north of Town Creek. We've never found any other site that we can definitively point to and say, Yeah, this is a, a Charlestown site. Uh, because, for instance, places like Brunswick Town, uh, you find 17th century
0: artifacts, artifacts yeah. there,
1: right? But what's to say that that's that piece of uh, Delftware, you know, pottery that you found at your site? Was to say that wasn't grandma's, you know, that wasn't brought there by somebody who settled in the 1700s and just happened to have grandma's china with them, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so you, there's nothing that you can point to definitively and say, yeah, this is a Charlestown site. Having said that, though, the same places that the Charlestown settlers would have chosen are also the same places that people who came after them would have chosen. Uh, so the Charlestown settlement was only there for three years, four if you count the 1663 Puritans coming down. Um, but people came after them. You know, By 1725, 1726, Brunswick Town is being settled, and and the people who come down with the Moors and, and the others, they're going to look for the same sorts of places that those initial settlers did. So you find that real estate being Co- yeah. Inhabited Reused, by yeah. different groups over the same time. Yeah. So initially,
0: these settlers who did kind of uh, build up Charlestown, at least for a short period, they had a, a fine relationship with the Native American tribes. Or would you say that wasn't the
1: case? William Hilton got along famously with them. Uh, William Hilton was the um, the Massachusetts Mariner that was hired by the uh, uh, Corporation of Barbadian Adventurers that wanted to set in Calor- uh, Carolina. Um they sent him to explore the place and, and he got along so well with them that one of the chiefs, you know, what um, uh, gave a couple of his daughters to him, you know, <laughs> yeah, as, as husband, what a different stuff. time. Yeah. He, uh, you know, now Hilton had a, a wife and kids back in Massachusetts. So I'm sure that was a sticky wicket, you know, trying mm. to, trying to dodge that bullet. But yeah, initially they did have a pretty good relationship. Uh, the Cape fears, the Cape fears were never a really big tribe. Um, they, uh, have been described by various other, uh, explorers along the Carolina coast. And, you know, that, that interacted with them as, as being, uh, uh, a poorly sort, you know, that they're, they're not like, uh, like the tribes that you found in the outer banks and places like that. You know, there was a, a higher than normal percentage of of older people there and things like that. Um, but they got along with them fine. Uh, that all changed when, that pattern of English settlement that we see over and over again starts to take place, where you know the English come in and and things are fine with the locals, and then they aren't able to be resupplied or they're lazy, like at Jamestown or whatever the case, and so they start uh, demanding that the locals feed them and things like that, and uh, and then you had the Puritans that joined the Vassal Colony come down and and they started taking Indian children ostensibly to christianize them well what they were really doing was getting free slave labor and so when the locals when the uh the englishmen the barbadians would be out in the woods tending their cattle they they did free-range cattle there wasn't cattle pens like we do today um these guys would be out in the woods tending to their cattle, and all of a sudden they're dodging arrows. You know, relations soured over that 24-month period because of the conduct of the English towards the locals. Um, and you can understand that, you know. Yeah. People are, are grabbing up your kids. <laughs> that That's yeah, it. Well, you're going to do them. what
0: you can, can sure. do. Absolutely. So, obviously, there were many things that went into Uh, kind of the downfall of Charlestown, but it seems like a lot of it is rooted in politics and profit. Would you say that is what what doomed it?
1: A lot of the stuff that happened to Charlestown happened through no fault of John Vassal and the people who sat here on the Cape Fear, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, First off, John Vassal jumped the gun, right? He, when the patent opened up, he sent his cousin to England to sign the documents and, and get a piece of land here on the Cape Fear from the Lord's proprietors. And he just assumed it was a done deal. So while Henry Vassal is is heading off to England to meet with uh, Shaftesbury and, and Monk and and Craven and all of the you know, eight Lord's proprietors and get the real estate deal done, Vassal loads up his guys and just heads off to the Cape Fear River. Well, what he didn't know was that John Yeamans, John Yeamans was a, a Barbadian a uh, planter who had also been part of the corporation of, of you know, adventurers, and they had split off. You know, they had differing objectives, so they formed their own thing. Well, Vassal didn't know that Yeamans was a getting inside information from John Colleton, who was one of the eight Lords Proprietors living in Barbados, and what the Lords Proprietors wanted to do, politically speaking, uh, the Spanish claimed everything in North America from Florida all the way up to the Chesapeake Bay. But claiming it and keeping it is two different things. There's a lot of claiming going on. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they claimed everything all the way up to the Chesapeake Bay. And the English realized that unless Spain could keep them out, then that claim was not valid. So in order to keep your claim, you had to put people on the ground and you had to defend it. So, Yeamans went to the Lord's proprietors, and instead of saying, we're going to plant at Cape Fear, they decided they were going to plant down around Port Royal, Charleston, South Carolina. And the Lord's proprietors liked that idea because it was challenging the Spanish, right? It was bearding them in their own den. It was pushing that boundary to see how much they could get away with in territory that Spain claimed. And by establishing a colony further south, it also acted kind of as a tripwire in case the Spanish made a move on Jamestown, which was you know producing big profits for, for the English at the time. So Yemens gets the okay. Meanwhile, Vassal and his guys have settled here on the Cape Fear, right? And turns out that their claim is not recognized. All they had was a handshake deal with the Lord's proprietors. They didn't get anything in writing. So you had that going on. Meanwhile, on the global stage, these eight lords proprietors who controlled this huge swath of land from Georgia to just below Virginia, the Carolina patent. These guys were not just in business for Carolina. They were also government ministers and everything. And over the course of these two years, you have the Great Plague of London. You know, The Black Plague, bubonic plague hits and it's killing off Thousands of people, and that only ends when the Great Fire of London happens a year later, sixteen sixty six. The only good thing to come out of that is it kills off the plague carrying rats. Good Lord! Um, but it also destroys seventy percent of the the houses in London, right? Um, and at the same time, you have the Second Anglo Dutch War going on. You know, the Dutch are in a big struggle with England over who's going to control the carrying trade in in the New World. So all of these things are going on, and 800 settlers sitting on the banks of the Cape Fear River, half a world away, are the absolute last things on these guys' minds. Yeah. So by 1667, John Vassal pleaded. He said, if I could just get 20 guys to stay with me, we could make a go of this thing. But nobody would do it. And... Yeah, there's a, a quote in the book. You know, one of the one of the people of the time wrote the Lords Proprietors and said that the Cape Fear faction was reduced more by uh, by faction than necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't have to happen that way, but just so many things conspired to kill Cape Fear. That by 1667, John Vassal threw in the towel and moved to Nanseman, Virginia, where his daughter had married uh, Nicholas Ware, and uh, he hung out there before he finally made his way. He inherited some land in Jamaica and went down there and and was pretty successful after that. But that was the end of the Cape Fear
0: Colony. Yeah. It's like, you know, with them moving kind of, as you said, jumping the gun, it's like they are, uh, it's like when you would buy a house and say you want it and then start the process of paying it, but then at the same time, start moving in. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you don't know if that's going to go through or not. And so you got to move everything back out. And um, it just seems, you know, and I imagine a lot of this was the case when you are settling a new world, literally, but it seems like a lot of risk. You know, you had to really take it's a, a risk on this risk. region.
1: You think about, and, and not just at Cape Fear, but, but all of those people who, who crossed an ocean in the 17th century to, to establish settlements here in the new world. What had to be going on in your life? How desperate would you have to be to give up everything you know? get aboard a ship that's not much bigger than a modern lifeboat cross an ocean and if you get there find a place to settle start carving a home for yourself out of a wilderness you know and, and being frankly you know taking it from the people who are already there yeah. right and then not that long later you know 50 75 years later you're taking on the greatest power in the world to keep it um, that is is huge Courage, that's a a great backbone. Yeah, yeah, I'm a colonialist. That's my favorite era. But the more I started researching the Charlestown story, the more I read about places like Jamestown and Plymouth and Ocracoke, uh, the more I find myself drawn to 17th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that that's that's pretty gutsy.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think about it now when you're driving around Brunswick County or even some of the other rural places in this area and you see just kind of wilderness for a little while it makes you think i always think about this would have been what it would have looked like for these people who came into this area and had to be like all right i got to go build an entire settlement you're starting from
1: scratch you know the only thing you have the only assets you have are the things you brought with you Mm -hmm. you yeah and uh So, you know, to a degree, that's also going to include, you know, some of the wealthier people may, you know, Barbados was the the capital of slavery Mm -hmm. in in the world at the time. So it's not unreasonable to uh, think that some of those Bayesian settlers that came in with Vassal uh, brought a few slaves with them to help with the workload and everything. But, you know, generally speaking, while there may have been some, there weren't a whole lot because most of the people who came with Vassal were, uh, uh, yeoman farmers? You know they were they were uh, working class people, um, and they wouldn't have had slaves. You know just just the the amount of work it went that went into you know carving a home for these people here.
0: So, what do you think is the importance of Charlestown specifically to all that followed it in the Carolinas?
1: Charlestown was the first stab at establishing a colony below the Albemarle here in the Carolinas, and there were things that happened that contributed to the failure of our Charlestown here on the Cape Fear River that served as a learning experience for the Lord's proprietors. The uh, the Charlestown settlement here on the Cape Fear River was kind of a laboratory for future English settlement along the East Coast, mm-hmm. below the Albemarle. Um, the settlement at Port Royal, a lot of the people who settled there had been part of this group on the Cape Fear, and they knew what had gone wrong there, and so that gave them... A little experience in how to deal with the locals you know the the natives that they find down there how to deal with uh, the environmental issues how to deal with the government and 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 whatnot so uh, even though it was only here for three years you know 1664 to 1667 Charlestown on the Cape Fear served as a laboratory that paved the way for future successful settlement at places like Port Royal and Charlestown um, on the Ashley River, uh, and the Copra Rivers down there, and, and even further south, places like Savannah.
0: Word does travel. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so do you think that it's been unfairly forgotten from history, but and you know, kind of overshadowed by its successor to the south?
1: There is a... Uh, obviously, it's been overshadowed. Um, yeah, the and and that would happen largely if for no other reason than Port Royal, the Yaman settlement, was successful, and and uh, and the vassal settlement on the Cape Fear was not. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there's a lot more material out there about the Port Royal settlement, about Yemen's and and Charleston, and what was established down there on the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, than there is here on the Cape Fear. Um, I mentioned in the introduction to the book that pulling together the story of Charlestown on the Cape Fear is is an exercise in 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 puzzle making in, in a lot of ways because you'll find you know, a mention here and a mention somewhere else and and it's it's a matter of pulling together all of these pieces and and putting together a a coherent story out of those pieces. Uh, we have not found a good manifest of, of the names of the people who were part of those Barbadian adventures that settled here. There's so much about what happened here that we don't know. Uh, It hasn't been found yet. Um, But you can, you can look through other works that have been done and, and yeah, a little piece gleaned here, a little piece gleaned there and, and pull it all together. And I think I've done a pretty good job of, of, putting together a, a coherent narrative of what happened here on the Cape Fear River Absolutely. and placing it within the larger context of the Atlantic world of the 17th century. So.
0: It's, a, it's, it's a wide world. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, And I would encourage everyone to go read uh, Jack's book when it comes out this fall. Uh, it's from Dramtree Books, which he also runs. Um, and he gave me a copy of it uh, to use for this episode for some background research. And uh, it is fascinating. It does give kind of a, a, a even broader picture of just puts Charlestown in the context of the world, I think, at the time. Um, and the book is called, again, uh, Charlestown on the Cape Fear, the Rise and Fall of the First Barbadian Settlement in Carolina. Thank you so much for being here, Jack. It's my pleasure. about Charlestown. Uh, and again, next week we're going to be talking about Brunswick Town so we can kind of piece together the, uh, the continue piecing together, I guess, the, the origins of Cape Fear. So, thanks, Jack. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Charlestown. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with the second episode in our Cape Fear Origins two-parter with the story of Brunswick Town. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag Unearthed, Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every Thursday. In it, I include links to our new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos I uncover in my research. And it's all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at hunter underscore wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.
1: Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... Uh